0: It's 2011 and the Arab Spring is raging. A lesbian activist in Syria starts a blog. She names it Gay Girl in Damascus. Am I crazy? Maybe. As her
1: profile grows, so does the danger. The object of the email was please read this while sitting down.
0: It's like a genie came out of the bottle and you can't put it back.
1: Gay Girl Gone. Available now.
2: This is a CBC Podcast.
0: Can you take me... I, I just want listeners to get a sense of what, when you go outside, what, what are you seeing? I see darkness.
2: I, now I'm, I'm, I'm on the balcony of the, the apartment that I'm living in with about four other families. Mm-hmm. About 35 people. I can see... Uh, I tell you that this full darkness will so just the jet fighters over there, 16 JIT fighters. I can see, I can listen.
0: You can hear them right now?
2: Yeah, I can see the light. It's next to the stars, but uh, the stars are beautiful. This is this ugly jet fighters,
0: which get death. Hi, I'm Damon Fairless. And that's what Amjad Shawa told me as he looked out from Dar al-Bala, a city in the center of the Gaza Strip. He saw a sky full of beautiful stars and Israeli fighter jets. Ugly, he told me, because they bring death. Just about
2: three, four buildings from here. There was uh, about four homes which was completely destroyed by air strike. About 30 people, and all of them from Gaza. Were killed. I could see the bodies in there. Oh, I'm sorry.
0: I reached Damjad Tuesday night in Gaza, over a phone line that threatened to cut out. The internet had already been dropping in and out all day. I'm just the coordinator with the Palestinian NGO network, an umbrella group of aid and rights organizations in the Palestinian territories. And so I asked him what the situation's like on the ground after over three weeks of bombardment. Sir, so, I don't know how
2: to describe it, uh, since it was catastrophic. We are in, w- in the worst conditions we are, since we have this intensive airstrikes mm-hmm. all over Gaza Strip. We have about 1.5 million mm-hmm. who are displaced from Gaza, north, and also on the south, there's strikes where some thousands of housing units were destroyed. So they're moving these people who, the rest of the people who are still alive, to the schools in very bad conditions. Now we have shortage of drinking water
0: uh, how bad? How bad is the shortage of drinking water?
2: I can tell you that uh, sometimes it's impossible to go back to your home with a bottle of drinking water.
0: Gazans continue to struggle for essentials under Israel's quote complete siege, which is blocking nearly all food, water, fuel, and electricity.
2: And you could see every morning thousands of people in line to get the bread.
0: And while some aid trucks have been coming into Gaza from Egypt for over a week now, Amjad seemed almost angry when I asked him about how much aid was actually getting through.
2: You know how many trucks enter Gaza from the 7th to October till now? Tell me. It's about 130, 140 trucks. Daily, Gaza, in normal times, we need for 400 trucks loads. And we are in a very catastrophic condition. I cannot see any impact of these. Small quantities.
0: No. It's also been almost three weeks since Israel ordered a complete evacuation of northern Gaza and the country's escalated airstrikes ever since. Amjad mentioned his horror over a strike on the Jabalia refugee camp on Tuesday, which the Gazan Health Ministry said killed 50 people and injured 150 others. Israel said it had targeted and killed a senior Hamas leader and claimed the group had an underground base below the Kansas neighborhood. City, a witness described that it, quote, felt like the end of the world and that seven to eight holes, craters in the ground, were, were filled with uh, dead people, body
1: parts, quote, all over the place.
0: On Wednesday, Israel hit the camp with another bombing. Amjad told me how the effects of all this devastation are piling up.
1: Our neighbor,
0: their cousin, he was a cancer patient. And you know that medical treatments
2: in uh, the hospitals were very busy. in the injured people, we have, you know, about 20,000 people were injured. And all the intensive care units are occupied by the injured. We, we couldn't be evacuated to any place. So he was, he died at his home. So he died in silence and there is uh, no place to have a grave
0: for him. So... He died in silence, and there's no place to have a grave for him. Amjad told me everyone has stories like this. He told me his own brother-in-law died at an airstrike after returning north to his family home to get clothing for their children. And Amjad is especially worried about Gaza's children. Half the population there is under 18,
2: I have a child, the youngest one, he's 14 years. He was born in 2008. 2008, the first big war launched in Gaza. Then we have 2012, another war. 2014, and then we have 2020, 2020
0: 2023. The day after his family arrived in the city of Deir al-Bala, Amjad said his son had gone out to buy something when Israel bombarded the neighborhood. Just in the front of him.
2: Was the airstrike. He laid on the ground, and uh, you can, you know, 30 minutes that we are looking and searching, but we find him. Thank God he's safe. You know, but every time I'm sleeping beside me, I'm hiding him. Of course. He's awake all most of the time, and this he's very, very bad psychological. But I, you know, I'm trying to give him some support, but uh, it will affect him for a long time, for sure.
0: Israel's offensive has now entered a new phase, with a ground invasion coming in from both the north and in the south, below Gaza City. The IDF is expanding its attack, deploying more troops and tanks moving towards Gaza City on two sides. Air strikes flattening buildings, burying people every day with little hope of rescue. Amjad left me with this message.
2: I cannot understand what's going on from this international community. I'm a human rights defender, and I cannot... Who can? Who can? Who can say this not to cease fire, to stop killing the innocent people? Who? Who? These Western countries used to fund, and support democracy and the human rights. This is the real time. The issue is not funding. The issue, we need to see it on the ground and voting and pressuring to stop massacres.
0: I want to take a deeper look at some of the concerns Amjad raised about life in Gaza. The desperate lack of water and food and some of the factors behind that. So I'm joined now by Aliyazaki Zaki in Jerusalem. She's the spokesperson for the Palestine Office of the World Food Program. The WFP has been distributing emergency food items to Gazans and has trucks full of supplies waiting to enter from Egypt. Aliya, thanks so much for coming on Front Burner. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So we recently spoke with Amjad Shawa with the Palestinian NGO network, and he's currently in the city of Dara al-Bala, which is in the middle of Gaza. And he mentioned that finding drinking water was becoming a real struggle for him and his family. I I want to get a sense from you how much clean water is available in Gaza right now.
3: Well, I mean, the main water salination plants of Gaza have either been destroyed or are no longer operational because of the lack of fuel. So people are having very limited access to clean water. Mm -hmm. On average, in some European countries, people consume around 140 to 180 litres of water a day. And this is for everything, you know, for for drinking, for wash, for all the purposes. But right now, it's estimated that on average, people in Gaza only have access to three litres of water per day per person. And these are the lucky ones because in some cases it's down to even just one liter. So it's right. it's really a catastrophic situation in this sense. We're hearing not just from, from the people that we serve but also from our colleagues and our team on the ground that they're resorting to drinking water from wells that are unsafe and un- unclean to drink.
0: They're now in Khan Yunus, where there was a major strike today. And uh, he says they're drinking water meant for toilets now, but that's what it has come to. so what, what's the concern there for for health if they're drinking from these these sources that aren't clean?
3: Well of course, there is a really increased risk of the infectious diseases and of malnutrition coming from this because the body is not adjusted to drinking water that's that's not safe and and so, of course, with the um, hospitals and the healthcare facilities shutting down one by one and not having the ability to operate, there won't even be a mechanism in place to to make sure that you know any diseases that can come out can be treated.
0: One of the things that Amjad mentioned when I spoke with him too was the difficulty getting bread and, uh, I guess, more generally food. His family had been living on uh, rice that they found, some potatoes. So I wanted to ask you, when it comes to food, how little are some people being forced to live on?
3: Well, I can tell you from the distributions that we're doing and, and WFP has been trying and, and planning to, to provide at least fresh bread and, and canned food to all the displaced people in shelters. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that sometimes when the bread reaches these people, they would say that it's the only thing that they have had to eat during that day. Mm. And, you know, we we were doing our monitoring and uh, trying to understand the accessibility of the markets and, and all of this. And every day we're warning that whatever food stocks were available in Gaza, which were already, you know, not enough. Uh, because, of course, there was, a, I think, more than 500 commercial and, and aid trucks coming into Gaza every day to meet the needs of the people. Mm. And for the longest time, it was cut off. So even this pre-existing stock was running out. But even this pre-existing stock was not available for shops, for the regular people. They can't move from where they are Mm. to go to where the food is. And so this was a major issue, primarily for the markets that are functioning. And then we started seeing at the shop level. So there are shops that are still operating, Mm -hmm. but they're running out of the basic food commodities. So things like sunflower oil or wheat flour or Pasta or things that are just basic commodities for people to just basically have a meal. They're running out and they could be completely gone within within a, a few days. And if we look at the people in shelters, it's even harder for them because they don't even have the resources to prepare the food. There's no water. There's no electricity. There's no cooking gas for them. They're fully just relying on ready-to-eat canned food or bread when it becomes available and even that bread is the ability of it to become available is decreasing day by day initially when we started the the operation we were working with around 23 bakeries Hmm. to deliver fresh bread to more than 200,000 people in shelters every day today only one of the bakeries we're working with is able to operate and we were only able to reach around 20,000 people
0: And is that just because of the lack of commodities and and I guess the general infrastructure?
3: Well, majority of bakeries have run out of fuel to be able to operate their machinery and to be able to actually produce the bread, which is one of the biggest challenges that we're having in in running this operation or in in trying to ensure that that people are still getting this aid. Because without fuel, the machines aren't running. The bread can't be made and let's say you know a bakery has a fuel supply or even is not relying on machinery and and they can get the bread out, it's not safe. They don't have safe access Mm. for them to deliver from the bakery to the shelter. And even bakeries themselves, we're receiving reports almost every day of bakeries being directly hit. Mm. One of the bakeries we were working with was also directly hit. And so with the damage of infrastructure, with the violence, with the lack of safety, with the lack of fuel, it's becoming increasingly more challenging to make sure that the little aid that is available is going to the people who need it.
2: Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one.
0: This weekend, the U.N. said thousands of people broke into its warehouses in Gaza taking food, including from your organization, the World Food Program. What what do those break-ins signal to you?
3: It's the sense of desperation. People aren't just going hungry. they're, They're becoming more and more desperate. This food was meant to reach them safely. You know, So this food had arrived in the day before through the Rafah crossing, and it was meant to be distributed immediately. But then there was a telecommunications cut. And with the lack of connectivity, which is another challenge that is mm-hmm. making it harder for our operations to run, we were not able to distribute it to the people on that day. And also, as uh, other UN colleagues mentioned, it's, it's a sign that the civil order is, is collapsing. And this is really a catastrophe.
0: And are you seeing signs of malnutrition? Are, are you concerned about starvation?
3: We're very concerned about the threat of starvation that could ensue before this crisis started. So before October 7, already 1.2 million people in Gaza were considered food insecure. So, you know, they, they don't know where their next meal is coming from. This, that was more than half the population. Yeah. Yeah. Right now, we're looking at almost all the population being at a threat of being a food insecure, of not knowing where their next meal is coming from. And of course, large, large numbers, everybody who has been displaced, it's been 1.4 million people have been displaced. The numbers are increasing at a very, very rapid scale, but the needs and the humanitarian aid coming in and the resources for us to, to be able to operate are not matching.
0: Let's talk about that. So, so there have been some aid trucks coming in through the Rafah border, crossing with Egypt for you know about a week or so. When we spoke with Amjad on Tuesday, he said he had heard of maybe 140 trucks getting in. Can you give me a sense of of what's coming in? How many trucks of aid are coming through?
3: So the last figure that has been reported as of uh, last night, so October 31st, was that 217 trucks have entered so far. Mm -hmm. Yesterday had the highest number of trucks coming in 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 one day. I know that 100 of these trucks were carrying food supplies. 20 of these trucks are WFP trucks. We've been saying this from the first day on 21st of October when the first convoy went in we welcome this step it's a good first step but it's nowhere near enough so even with this scale up in in the number of trucks that were able to go in yesterday let's look at what happens after they cross and and this is where you know things get very challenging and without securing the right resources and right circumstances for the humanitarian operations to take place the number of trucks coming in it's not going to be functional just to give you a very very brief example you know yesterday we were trying to move the trucks so some trucks have have come into gaza bringing in food supplies well we need to move these trucks from after they come in to the distribution sites but there's no fuel next step we need to make sure that the you know we have a place that is safe for distribution to take place and not just for our humanitarian workers to be safe but for the people that we're trying to reach because we cannot risk putting people also at risk. Well, that cannot be secured. There's no safe access. And then to top it all off, there was another telecommunications cut this morning. And so again, we were out of reach with our colleagues and the teams on the ground.
0: Okay, so multiple news outlets cited US officials on Monday saying Israel had agreed to allow 100 trucks through a day across the border. I know you said that there's other problems, logistical problems once the aid enters the Gaza Strip. But in terms of just the supply. Is 100 trucks enough? Is that a solution?
3: 100 trucks a day of what? Because for food, we would need 100 trucks a day of food to be able to meet the food needs. And I can't speak on behalf of the other sectors, but I know that each each sector would probably need the same amount. So 100 trucks mm-hmm. of medicine, 100 trucks of water. WFP needs alone 40 trucks a day. Of food supplies to be able to do this planned response of reaching a million people who are in need of food?
0: The WFP that it's been providing aid to Gaza through a number of conflicts. This isn't the first, obviously, but has it ever had this kind of prolonged or difficult a time providing aid?
3: Everyone I'm working with is saying that even though they've worked through several of these conflicts in Gaza, the challenges here are immense and unprecedented.
0: So if more it doesn't make its way in. What do you fear could happen in Gaza?
3: Well, we really fear about the fate of these people. I, I can't even imagine, you know, because we as humanitarian workers, we try to do what we can to alleviate some of the suffering. And this is something immediate that can be done, you know, at least make sure that the people have something to eat at the end of the day, that they're not turning to their families and saying, I can't provide for you. And this is something that we're seeing, even with our own colleagues who are in Gaza, we are receiving messages from them that they're saying, we don't have food. We're worried about not being able to feed our children. And I can't imagine how much that would be if on a much bigger scale, if an entire population is not able to get the food it needs to survive.
0: All right, Alia, thank you so much for speaking with us.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: At the beginning of the show, Amjad also mentioned how many thousands of injuries have overwhelmed Gaza's hospitals at a time when a lack of fuel and supplies is limiting patient care. So I want to bring you one last update today about what the doctors inside these hospitals are saying about the conditions. Dr. Omar Abdelmanan is a pediatric neurologist who's worked extensively in Gaza for more than a decade. And he's the founder of Gaza Medic Voices, which collects the first-hand accounts of healthcare workers there. We reached him in London. Hi, Dr. Abdelmanan. thanks so much for coming on FrontBurner.
1: Uh, Thank you for having me.
0: So doctors in Gaza have been operating in uh, damaged buildings packed full of patients with tremendous shortages of power and essential medical supplies for weeks now, what have you been hearing about uh, how your colleagues in Gaza are doing right now, how are they coping with their work?
1: Sure. Um so we've we have been in contact with doctors, surgeons, healthcare professionals since day one of this war. We have to think about the context as well. So this is a healthcare system that was already on its knees as a result of 17 years of blockade and siege from air, land and sea, compounded now by an escalation which has essentially pushed this healthcare system into collapse. What we know, and this is from you know speaking to the doctors on the ground, is that Many of the hospitals, at least a third of the hospitals when I last spoke to them, have essentially gone out of service. These are hospitals that are no longer able to accept patients, to look after patients. And that's as a result directly from the lack of fuel and the electricity cuts as a result of the generators running out of fuel, essentially. The basic supplies, medications, antibiotics, basic things that you need to run a healthcare facility, let alone a large tertiary care hospital are basically completely diminished. They're completely finished. So these guys are working day and night shifts uh, with very little break under extremely stressful conditions. Mm. They are struggling to look after their patients. Mm. And on top of that, many of them have had fam- family members killed uh, whilst being on duty. So they would find their loved ones coming in as corpses into the hospital that they are working So this is a really oh horrific goodness. situation that they're struggling with.
0: A couple of weeks ago, we spoke with an MSF doctor in Gaza, Mohammed Abu Mugaisi, and he told us back then the health system was on the brink of collapse. At that point, primarily because fuel was running out for generators. And it sounds like, from what you're saying, we're kind of there now. I guess I'm curious specifically what kind of things in the hospitals are simply no, no longer functioning?
1: So, in terms of running out of fuel, so the last message I had, there was today, I'm sure you know, there's been a communication blackout again in Gaza. I think it's yeah. been a bit more intermittent than before because I have had a couple of voice notes come through. But the last proper message I had from a colleague yesterday evening was from our Shifa hospital, the largest trauma center in the north of Gaza. And they basically, their colleague said to me, you know, we are hours away from our generator shutting down. And yeah. what that actually practically means is no electricity for a lot of the life-saving equipment which patients rely on. So if you think of a you know, a neonatal unit or an intensive care unit or a pediatric intensive care unit, these are run by essentially ventilators or breathing machines to keep their patients alive. These patients, if the electricity runs out and you can't automatically ventilate them, then you have to manually do that. And there's only a limited number of staff that can actually physically do that. So what that actually means is the potential death of a number of patients, a large number of patients as a result of, being unable to sustain them on life-saving equipment. Now, unfortunately, I haven't been able to contact these doctors to find out what has actually happened as a result of this. But I can only be imagining that is pretty horrific situation. It also means things like uh, dialysis machines, which are used for uh, patients with kidney failure, they rely on this again to keep them alive. That's not working. You know, even fluid pumps to give uh, saline to dehydrated patients. Um, antibiotic machines, all of these, uh, equipment rely on electricity. Uh, and the lack of fuel coming in from Egypt from, uh, as a result of the Israeli sort of decision not to bring in fuel is, you know, compounding this problem and making uh, the situation untenable really for the patients and the doctors and staff on the ground.
0: Over the weekend, the Palestinian Red Crescent Society said Israel had ordered the evacuation of Al-Quds Hospital in, in northern Gaza. If that's even logistically possible, what are the dangers of trying to evacuate an entire hospital like that?
1: Well, I think, as you rightly point out, it is almost impossible, it's nigh-on impossible to evacuate a hospital this size in a war zone, and a hospital that is already depleted in, in every sense, in its staff, and its resources, in its bed capacity. And the other issue is, and this is really important, I don't think this is stressed enough, is many of these hospitals are being used as shelters. So patients are being treated in hallways, in corridors, on the floor. So you can imagine logistically, you know, the number of patients packing these areas and the number of people there means that it's almost impossible to actually evacuate a hospital or actually move people out. And if you're evacuating hospital, you start with, with the sickest patients on ventilators. You try to get those moved out. The ones who are like walking injured, you 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 try to help but You, as I said, I think that mass migration from a hospital, especially with the surrounding area is being bombed. So we have to remember that uh, the surrounding area of puts the surrounding area of, of Shifa, have been bombed regularly and indiscriminately. So even if you got patients into an ambulance with a paramedics, there is a high risk that these same ambulances are going to be fired at and. No doctor wants to be put in that position where they take a patient outside. And then the next thing they know is the ambulance has been blown to smithereens.
0: So Israel's begun a uh, ground offensive uh, in the last week. At the same time, uh, we just spoke today to uh, someone from the World Food Programme about the health effects of lack of having access to food and clean water, disease, uh, lack of sanitation, my understanding is that a lot of what doctors have been treating now are trauma injuries from the bombardment. There's a second wave of public health concern coming. Do you have a sense of how doctors are preparing to deal with the impact of, of those things uh, as well as the ongoing you know, trauma?
1: So I think, I think that's a very important point, and I think this is the essentially the long game. So the malnutrition side and the, the lack of sanitation, the lack of water and the dehydration, these are going to have chronic effects, which we will see for generations to come. So, and this is actually not new. Gaza has been under siege, as I said before, for over 17 years. We know there are areas that, especially in the refugee camps where there's been chronic malnutrition, chronic malnutrition in children and being a pediatrician, you know, I sort of understand this that this has direct effects on your long-term cognitive outcomes. This has long-term effects on your health outcomes. This will have a knock-on effect for generations to come. Now, in terms of what doctors are doing on the ground, I think the reality is they are so inundated with the short-term direct impact of IDF bombs that they probably are not able to foresee that huge tsunami of excess deaths that is basically waiting around the corner and, and will for definite arrive. The risk of infectious disease, I mean, I am, and, and this will again be, another public health dis- disaster that is awaiting these uh, poor souls that have already been subjected to essentially death in, in, in numbers that they have never witnessed before.
0: All right, Dr. Abdulmanan, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking time.
1: Thank you so much for your time.
0: That's it for today. We'll keep bringing you updates on the situation in Gaza as the ground offensive continues. I'm Damon Fairless. Thanks for listening to Front Burner. I'll talk to you tomorrow.
1: For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.